Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week played an instrumental role in the UK's departure from the European Union. As Boris Johnson's Europe advisor and chief negotiator in the exit talks with the EU, Lord Frost drew on a lifetime of experience as a civil servant and foreign office diplomat to help get the trade and cooperation agreement over the line. Since leaving government at the end of 2021, he's continued to be a vocal advocate for a smaller state, lower taxes, and a version of Brexit that takes full advantage of potential divergence from the Brussels way of doing things. We sat down to talk about the Tories' electoral plight, the shape of Brexit seven years after the referendum, and whether the government should go for a full-bore war on woke. David, thank you very much for being with us on the CapEx podcast. I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners know who you are, but just in case there are some who don't, could you give us a quick rundown of who you are and what you do and what you have done in quite a sort of long career in public service and politics. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Um, so I spent most of my life as a civil servant, as a diplomat, uh, finished up as ambassador in Denmark, um, specialised in EU trade sort of affairs, then left around the Scotch Whiskey Association, which is a big trade association for a bit, and then was tempted back into government on the political side, special advisor by Boris Johnson after the referendum. And the rest is history. He got to be PM. I came with him to finish the Brexit negotiations, do the trade deal, was briefly a cabinet minister, and now looking in from outside. So that's the very short version. Yeah, it's a fairly unusual route that you've taken in terms of being a career civil servant, then latterly going into politics. Do you think when you were working in the Foreign Office or as ambassador to Denmark or any of these jobs, you would have imagined 10 years down the line being a minister or being in the kind of forefront of British politics in this way? No, not all. I got lucky. And I think I was the the right person at the right time. There weren't many people in the Foreign Office or out of the Foreign Office who sympathised with Brexit and yet understood the European Union. And I think one of the problems with our first round of negotiations under Theresa May was that we didn't have enough people who really knew the ropes yet wanted to do the job. So a lot of things delivered the result, but I think it was important to have somebody leading the talks who understood the EU and wanted to do the job. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to the, the evolution of our relationship with the EU, but would you say that you, having worked in those kind of corridors of power, 
Did your view of the institution change over the years? I mean, was Brexit a kind of scissure there? I mean, I became a strong Eurosceptic pretty soon after arriving in Brussels in the mid 90s, my four years in the mission in Brussels, and because I could see that it was an organization that was doing things that I didn't think this country wanted to do or should want to do. It was a federalizing dynamic organization that was taking us in a different direction. All the developments since then, I think, confirmed that. I think in my own mind, the two things that convinced me we were going to have to leave, first of all, was our veto and its circumvention in 2011 of the new stability mechanism. And then Cameron's failed negotiation, which I think was the final blow for many people who thought something could yet be pulled out of this and it became impossible. Did you think that the negotiations would drag on as long as they did, notwithstanding that COVID threw a bit of a spanner in the works? I mean, if you'd said in June 2016 that it would take until, you know, the best part of six years for us to properly exit, would you have been surprised by that? Or your knowledge of the EU and how it works, would you have said, you know, these things take a long, long time? It wouldn't have surprised me that the whole thing and the whole process took a long time to get us to where we wanted to go. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I think what was surprising and obviously what was damaging was the way it was done. The failure of will to get the job done, Theresa May losing the election, us trying to have it both ways, trying to negotiate to leave while still not being really committed, the growth of the second referendum movement in 18 and 19, all of that was obviously incredibly damaging. And I don't think anyone thought that in 2016. I think if you'd said there's going to be five years of gradual transition, that's one thing. Five years of trauma for the country, that's different. I mean, to what extent do you think that process is still in some ways transitional and and it'll always be a kind of yin and yang and an evolving relationship with the EU? The EU is the biggest neighbour at the moment. Together, it's the biggest trading partner, though declining. It's always going to be a really important part of our foreign relations with the EU and with its member states. You know, I don't find it surprising when people say we're going to be negotiating with the EU for the rest of you know your life or whatever. Of course we are. That's international relations. And the belief that we won't was based on this fallacy that Brexit was about shutting ourselves off from the world and having nothing else to do with it. We keep talking, but it's a different kind of relationship in which we are largely not controlled by the EU ways of doing things. And what do you see as the best kind of economic argument in terms of not being in the EU, especially given we haven't really done very much so far with our freedoms from being outside the organisation? The best argument is that countries who are in control of their own affairs make the best decisions for their own economies. And I've always said, some Brexiteers have tried to elide this, but I've always been clear There is a short-run hit from leaving customs union and the single market. It isn't anything like as big as a lot of people say, but obviously there is a small hit. That will be outweighed in the medium term by the ability to set rules, run your own economy in a way that suits your particular strengths and weaknesses. And I would say for us to be open to the world and different ways of doing things in a way that the EU is never going to be. There are plenty of things that are nothing to do with the EU that we need to do and change and reform. 
So yeah, we'll come on to some of those other policy areas because you've been reasonably outspoken about the various things you think yeah. the government is doing wrong. I just want to carry on with the kind of loose ends of Brexit, if you like. I mean, the obvious one is Northern Ireland. I mean, yeah. the Prime Minister came away with the Windsor framework and as soon as he had done so, the not just the kind of ERG type voices, but also unionists and various commentators were saying, well, this actually, he hasn't sliced the Gordian knot here. There are still going to be those problems. And what's your view on that? Do you think that there's still a constitutional and economic issue there? I do, really. I think it was oversold. Uh, it was obviously going to go through, so there was really no point in resisting it. But basically, it is some tinkering at the edges of the protocol framework. Some things are better in it than what we were able to negotiate in 2019. What I worry about is that it, it ends up entrenching the protocol framework, whereas our view in 19 and 20 was that it should be a temporary arrangement and Northern Ireland would, over time, move much closer to the rest of the UK. That's my worry about it. And some of the commitments that we've taken on to be conscious of the impacts of deregulation and change within GB on the wider Northern Ireland framework, I worry are going to be an inhibition against some of the changes that we need to make more generally. So my honest view is it is better. It's an improvement slightly. It doesn't deal with the basic underlying constitutional problem. And honestly, when it's implemented, I suspect it's not going to feel that different from how it is now. I mean, do you worry about the future of Northern Ireland in the UK? I mean, how do you see that argument going? Because it strikes me that the Republic doesn't necessarily actually want to incorporate Northern Ireland. I mean, the polling in Northern Ireland is quite clear that there is a, a strong majority, you know, probably stronger than Scotland, to remain in the UK. And that's because there is a middle ground, which you know, may not be sort of ideological flag-waving unionists, but nevertheless likes being in the UK and sees the advantages of it. And as long as we keep doing our politics and economics in a way that supports that sort of broad middle ground, I think it will be sustained. And there's no reason why it shouldn't, in my view. Yeah, you mentioned Scotland there. It seems striking that when Brexit happened, a lot of people kind of slightly lazily assumed, oh, it's up, time's up for the union. But it's almost seemed like the independence cause is at the lowest ebb it's been for more than a decade or so at the moment. Obviously, the SNP's own internal kind of shenanigans have been part of where they, they are at the moment. But I do think the more fundamental thing is there isn't really anywhere else to go. Uh, you know, Scottish independence from a Brexit Britain is, I think, not really a viable or at least massively attractive prospect to a lot of people. So I think they're running up against that reality. I do think, and some people in the party in Scotland are not very happy about this, but I say it again, I do think that, you know, where we are in devolution should not necessarily be where we are for all time. I'm not saying it should be abolished. But the very extensive granting of powers in all kinds of areas to the Scottish government, I don't see why that is a permanent feature of national life. It should be debated like anything else. If you're a unionist, it's been very counterproductive, the kind of devolve and forget approach, because the SNP are never going to say, oh, yeah, that's fine. We've got what we want. It's been a disaster. And surely, if anything has been disproved by experience, is the view that more devolution will defuse independence. All it's done is fueled it because it's set up a dynamic where when the SNP are in power, they can say, 
we could do this much better if only we're independent, if only we had more money from the British government, if only there was a next step. And that's the dynamic that's been created. And at some point, if we want to maintain the integrity of the country, we've got to say, stop. And that's what we should mm. be doing. In the short term, though, I mean, as a conservative, it's not necessarily the sort of collapse of the SNP. I think collapse is probably overstating it. They have a very strong baseline support, but a weakening of SNP support actually probably benefits Labour in Scotland in terms of the seats they might win. We saw in 2017, the SNP dropped quite a lot and Labour barely moved and won 10 more seats. How concerned are you about the Conservatives' performance there? But also more broadly, I mean, we had local elections last week and the Tories lost over a thousand councillors. I mean, think it's a pretty sticky wicket at the moment. Well, it is. And last week's local elections, there's been a lot of, in my view, uh, slightly unthinking extrapolation from the results. If you score 27, 28, 29% in a national election, you lose that election. You always do. Nobody's won the election with anything like those numbers. So however it plays out between Labour and the Lib Dems and everybody else, it's very clear that Conservative Party's got a big, big problem. And I think you need saying clearly because we could sort of fool ourselves. You know, we could take false comfort from these results and say, the country hasn't sealed the deal with Keir Starmer yet, which is probably true. It is also true that in local elections, you know, Lib Dems and Greens are not wasted votes in the way they are nationally. So you, you are going to see different behaviour. But the fundamental thing is that people are not coming out to support the Conservative Party. And that's a problem. And that's what we've got to do something about. Do you have some sympathy for Rishi Sunak in the sense that his job when he came in was to kind of steady things? And now his his brand is sort of competence, which is inherently not very exciting. It's quite hard to go, yeah, steady as she goes. You know, one has to have a lot of sympathy. And I think everybody in the party, and I've written this, everyone in the party has to you know, stop letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, because we did have to stabilise the ship. It was wobbling rapidly. You know, he has stabilised this. I think his big problem, you know, not only is his inheritance, but the fact that the Conservative Party in Parliament is an extremely broad church and assessing where the centre of gravity is and where you can take things forward is not straightforward, probably constantly changes. So, I do think it is difficult inheritance. I do also think that, you know, competence and steady as she goes is not enough. And we now need to decide which harbour we're sailing to, having got the ship kind of righted again. And that, I think, is not obvious to many of our potential supporters yet. What would your kind of policy preferences be? I mean, what do you think... The government ought to be emphasising going into an election in, let's say, 18 months' time. Yeah. So there's a limit, obviously, to what can actually be done in the real world in those 12 to 18 months. That's clear. It's almost too late for any measures to have a, a real practical effect, except in some limited area. So it's all about credibility and conviction and setting a sense of direction. And I think... You know, maybe it's because I've not come up as an elected politician, but I tend to think the best way of taking these forward is to come up with the correct analysis of the problem and then try and persuade people of it rather than try and guess what people want and then give it them. And in the end, that loses you philosophical and practical focus. I and mean, then what we should be saying is, here is our diagnosis of what's wrong with the country. Here is how 
we're going to fix it. It isn't going to be easy, going to take time, but this is the way of doing it. I mean, do you think the five priorities or mission, I forget from between Kia's missions and uh, the pillars and the, yeah. there's so many different ones knocking about, but yeah, Rishi Sunak has kind of five things that he set out. Do those strike you as kind of broadly sensible? I mean, stop the boats has been a big one. I mean, we know it polls well, but then it rubs up against the thing you're talking about, which is probably not going to tackle this in the space of 18 months. No, I, I think it is going to be difficult at that particular point, even if we get the bill through. Um, but if we can at least show that the direction is changing, even if the problem yeah. is not solved, I think that will go quite a long way to convincing people that, you know, we're serious about it. I think that has been the problem. The five priorities, yes, are fine. I mean, they'll sort of run out at the end of the year and then we'll have to set something else. They're very short term priorities. Nobody can disagree with them, but they don't amount to a, a worldview. That's what we've got to do. And you know, for me, the diagnosis I make is that the British economy is stronger in the short run and more flexible than many people think. And a lot of people have been caught out kind of on the downside in the last year in their predictions, but that it has a lot of significant underlying weaknesses that have to be addressed that have dragged down growth in recent years and are the kind of underlying cause of the dysfunction politically and economically that we see. And it's those that have got to be tackled. But the kind of umbrella problem is probably productivity or low productivity growth. I mean, what do you see as those big underlying problems for the UK economy and how ought they to be tackled? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of debate about what's at the core of the productivity problem. But we know for sure certain things are going to be problems. First of all, housing. Obviously, housing has a big impact on everything productivity as well as house prices, family formation, all that sort of thing, the ability of people to move around where work is. I'm sure there's a big impact there, and I don't see any alternative but to having significant planning reform and house building. I would say energy as well. We're on a track to net zero. In my view, is too quick with the technologies that we've got available that is going to cause us energy price problems, energy security problems. It's going to make maintaining some industry here difficult. And we have been on an upward track on tax and spend for some time. We need to reverse that. There's no future for the economy as a high tax, high spend, European style economy, in my view. And I think we are going to have to do significant public service reform. The NHS we're pouring money into without commensurate outputs. We are paying a lot of people to stay at home and do nothing. Universal credit is paid quite a long way up the income spectrum now in a way that I don't think was really envisaged. So those are just some of the things that, I mean, any one of those is like a major, major reform. And for a government to tackle all of those is quite big. But there's no point in putting on the table solutions which don't solve our problems just because they're the only ones that we think we can sell. We must say these are the problems and this is how we're going to go about it. As well as these long-term problems that you mentioned, we've also got the kind of overhang of the pandemic. One argument I've heard, which I have a bit of sympathy for, is that it's a kind of cultural problem that because the government stepped in on such a big scale during the pandemic, now they can't say no to anything because everyone will go, oh, well, you found money then. I mean, do you worry that we're becoming even more sort of statist because of that, the series of interventions, which may have been necessary at the time, but were actually pretty extraordinary? I do think it's had a big 
the sort of psychological and political effects. I do think it's only the final stage of quite a few things that have happened, though. And I, I would go back to at least to the crash of 2008, possibly a little earlier, but certainly to them, when we had the first wave of bailouts. And it generated the psychology of, well, if the banks can be bailed out, then why can't anybody else be bailed out? The government could take on all this debt without apparently any effect, though we've seen the effects of it. I actually think climate policy in the way we've got it is a big part of the problem. The kind of constant hectoring of people to change their lifestyles and live in a particular way. The idea that the net zero target can only be reached through very strong state intervention to reach particular goals and that the market won't do the job. The market's part of the problem. I think all these things have been going on for some time. And then the pandemic just kind of put an extra layer on that. And we've now got an extremely collectivist political framework in which a discussion of free markets and how they work and how a modern economy works now seems quite jarring and countercultural in ways it probably didn't 20 years ago. Yeah, um, I fear that the kind of trust squatting fiasco has made that even more difficult for, if you like, our side of the debate. It didn't help, though. I worried it would be worse than I think it's turned out to be in terms of the, the immediate effect. You know, there is still a strong pro-growth lobby in the Conservative Party, at least, um, and beyond issues like house building and so on, have not been successfully put in a box and ignored. They do keep bubbling back. And there is a, you do hear people saying, uh, you know, Liz Truss had the right policies, went about it in the wrong way. I don't think these things are quite so easily just junked as some people hoped. Yeah, I mean, there was plenty in that, in the growth plan that was quite unobjectionable, regardless of your kind of political outlook in Absolutely. terms of planning and things like that. It strikes me that most of what we've discussed, pretty much all of what we've discussed is kind of proper nuts and bolts, policy, economics, stuff like that. There are people who think that the way for the Conservatives to win in 24 is to kind of lean into cultural issues. Cultural is a strange way of putting it. Do you think that's a road the party wants to go down? Because I I'm personally am concerned that it will lead you to a place you don't want to be in. The phrase the culture war comes to mean so many different things. And I think that's the problem. If you mean, should this party stand up against, you know, some of the extraordinary excesses of the trans movement, say, then I would say, yes, that it is right to draw a line on some of that. If what you mean is we should take delight in sort of taunting the new elite for kind of having misjudged Britain and uh, focusing only on, you know, kind of C1s and so on as our voting base. Or if you mean the government should direct speech and culture, but just in a different direction to the way it's going at the moment, then I don't think that's a viable policy. What I do think is that the government needs to be clearer in policing free speech And I think that is a big part of the problem, that people feel inhibited from saying what they think, from questioning what they hear taught in schools, for example, questioning their university lecturers, whatever, you know, at work, questioning what they hear. And I think, you know, I don't mind if people hold woke opinions. I don't mind if they hold socially conservative opinions, as long as everybody feels free to say what they think and debate it and may the best story win. And I I believe that, you know, relatively 
if you like, sort of conventional worldviews are going to win out in that compared to the new ideology. I wouldn't say it shouldn't be an element in what we do. It's a free society. It's a free country. We must be careful in going too far the other direction on this. Yeah, I guess it's a question of kind of proportion above all, not necessarily. You can have a view while saying we shouldn't make this the main thing about our election campaign. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I do think, you know, to return to it, free speech is so important. Government should protect those who speak out and, you know, be willing to stand up for all sides of the debate. And I think we'll get to a better result that way. I do find it concerning when I see, for example, the Oxford Society's Oxford trying to de-platform someone like Kathleen Stock, who is one of the least kind of spittle flecks of... Uh, she's become a culture warrior inadvertently without ever actually being one. It's very yeah. strange. You know, when I was at university, people tried to de-platform conservative cabinet ministers. I remember that. But what's different now is the cancel culture, the virulence, you know, one side in this debate, policing the speech of the other, coming down on them, making it impossible to run a counter case, you know, pointing to them as being bad people all the time. And, you know, if you can't be nice, be quiet, this sort of thing. I think that's what's different. And that's what we must try and resist and kind of open out by protecting full freedom of debate. Yeah, I mean, linked to these debates, there's a new kind of sort of school of conservatism that's taking root, which we broadly call national conservatism. We had Ed West on the podcast a few weeks ago, as listeners may remember, and we talked about there's a conference right here, pretty much opposite where we're recording this podcast. And it's really, it's quite a strikingly prominent lineup. We've got cabinet ministers. You're speaking as well. Um, yeah. uh, lots of writers, people from the States as well. You know, I mean, do you think, firstly, I mean, what do you perceive as national conservative? Is it a kind of coherent philosophy or is it more of a backlash against what some see as kind of liberal excesses of the last few decades? I think there are various things going on in the national conservative movement. There is a kind of manifesto for it, a 10-point plan, as it were, or manifesto, which is written up. I think it's a centre of gravity rather than necessarily something that everybody agrees with in total. I think what is important in it is, from our point of view anyway, from Britain's point of view, is the emphasis on the nation state and the importance in this world of re-emphasising the democratic nation state as the best way we've found of organizing our affairs and pushing back against the undermining, discrediting of nations and nation states as such. And obviously that resonates post-Brexit here, but not only here. I think that's the important thing in it from our point of view and why it's struck a chord probably with so many people. Where I I mean, I think for this movement to land in Britain, it's got to be careful of two things. One is, you know, that we don't drift into a sort of flag and faith type nationalism. And, you know, obviously, even the word national is quite problematic, as they say nowadays. And it has a set of connotations that don't land well in Europe. And I think what we need is a word. We almost need a word that means you know, like nation-statism, something like that, the emphasis on the nation-state, not nationalism with all its sort of overtones. So that's one thing. The other area where I have concerns, though only slightly, is the emphasis in the US side on industrial policy, protectionism, sort of direction of the economy, 
for the nation's interests. And however valuable that might be in an economy the size of the US, I don't think it's the way for us here. I actually don't think that's a big risk out of the National Conservative Conference. I think the, you know, the industrial policy risk comes from the Nick Timothy, the onward, the sort of left social democrat version of conservatism that seems quite strong. That seems to be where that risk is for us. You see that as something separate from national conservatism, that strand of red Toryism, I think we've yeah. sometimes called it. I mean, there are definitely people who call themselves national conservatives, I think, who would advocate that for the UK. I don't think that the driver of national conservatism in the British context is people who think that. I think it comes from a different wing of the Conservative Party. Every version of conservatism is different in every country. By definition, it taps into history, tradition, and therefore our version of national conservatism, if there is to be such a thing, is going to be different from the American one. And I think it's going to be much more an emphasis on building the nation, rebuilding the nation, but free markets, freedom, openness, anti-protectionism, which are part of our national tradition as the way of achieving that. I just think one of the strange kind of outflows of Brexit is that in a lot of commentary and even in politicians talking about it, they act as though EU trade is this vast amount of our economy, whereas actually most of it is still in our own gift. Absolutely. You know, what we need to do is in our own hands. You know, I've always been a slight sceptic of the emphasis in the case for Brexit on lots of trade deals. I mean, they're nice to have. They certainly help. But in the end, the benefits of trade come from openness in your own economy and increasing competitive forces in your own economy and removing barriers and so on. And openness to trade is a way of making some of that happen. That's why it works. So it's inward as well as outward. And what particular areas would you focus on? I'm thinking of things like agricultural policy, I think is a very interesting one, where the EU is extremely protectionist and has rules against you know, GMO and gene editing and stuff, where we're right on the kind of cusp of those technologies. I mean, what do you see as the Brexit freedoms that we should take advantage of? I think there's going to have to be a level of rolling back of regulation process in this country in a way that people you know, have not really come to terms with yet. And, you know, the growth of that and the furring up of the arteries over time is one reason why productivity growth is under 1% rather than 3%. We, we have to do things to change that. So I think we're going to have to look at a lot of things, employment legislation, the process or planning and environment legislation where we're much more burdened actually than Europe. Agriculture, yes. I don't think there's a future for British agriculture is, you know, sort of permanently subsidised at high levels. It's, it has to be done differently. All of that kind of comes back to the fact that, you know, our tax and spend burden is the highest it's ever been. The idea that this, you know, the small state is something we can never have. I mean, the state was a lot smaller only 10 years ago. And under Blair, it was, it was really quite a lot smaller than it is now. There's not some sort of fantasy world that we can never get back to. It's something we can get back to if we take the right decisions. As a career civil servant, what's your view on how Whitehall itself is performing its functions? And do you think it's got better or worse over the time that you've been in public service? I think there's a lot wrong in the Whitehall system. Um, there are a lot of clever people, a lot of good people in Whitehall and civil service, undoubtedly. The weakness with the system at the moment is that ministers don't have enough allies 
to carry out their mandated tasks. And it seems like every administration has got to discover over again that a minister plus two special advisors is not enough to deliver policies within the Whitehall bureaucracy. And I think what you need is more special advisors, but also a system where it's much easier to bring in and out supporters, experts into the higher reaches of the civil service, people who are committed to the project and it's expected they leave if the government changes and new government wants a different bunch of people. To me, that's the problem. It's this connection between the ministerial will to get things done and the, the bureaucracy, which isn't so much resisting as just sort of thrashing around. And we've just got to make that connection a lot stronger. Nobody in a private company, if you, if you told somebody to go into a private company and told them they wouldn't be able to change any of the people around them or their budgets or their goals, you wouldn't really expect them to deliver a decent result. Yeah, we expect that of ministers. And so it's not surprising the system is not working well. It's also a kind of weird thing. And you mentioned this in another interview you did not long ago with the Institute for Government, that the way the actual ministerial day works is very strange in the sense that you're expected to do your paperwork in the evening rather than during the working day. And that strikes me from the outside, at least, as a rather odd way of doing things. It's very strange. And I found, I mean, being a minister, I mean, I'm one of the few people who's been a civil servant and special advisor and minister. Being a minister is more different to any of those other things than any of the, the others are like themselves. I think your day as a minister, unless you exert a kind of extreme control freak control over it, is just overwhelmed by meetings and, and sort of rubbish. People wanting to see you, people you kind of sort of have to see, but it doesn't really help you do your day-to-day tasks and the amount of time you've got to think of, you know, how you're going to pursue your goals gets squeezed. I don't find it at all surprising that somebody like Dom Raab, you know, ruthlessly controlled his diary and, you know, was very clear about what he expected from his office. Unless you do that, you're overwhelmed. Everybody finds the right way of doing it, but you have to exert extreme control extreme clarity about the goals, find allies and help them do the job. Do you think that problem would be solved by the thing you mentioned before about being having more control over your immediate staff, your reports? What you want in a large bureaucracy is for everyone to know what you want to happen if they can't ask you directly. If the whole system depends on every time there's a problem, somebody asking the guy at the top, then it very quickly gets bogged down. So what you need to do to make it work is be super clear about your philosophy and have enough people in the system who understand that and believe in it and want to make it happen so that they are your substitutes who can go to them, ask them, they can multiply the messaging and be clear so that in the end it becomes aligned. And I'm not sure where this quotation comes from or which civil servant it is. But I remember reading that some senior civil servant under Mrs. Thatcher said, the thing about the Thatcher government was that we always knew which direction she wanted to go. Confronted with any problem, we always knew she would want to take it closer to the market. And that gave us guidance as to how we would approach things. And that, if you're going to succeed, that's how you want people to be thinking. Well, there's no better way to end a CapEx podcast than a peon to the Iron Lady. So uh, we will leave it there. David, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you all at home as ever. 
for listening and do tell all your friends about the CapEx podcast. Leave a review wherever you get your podcast, be it Spotify or iTunes or Acast. And do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. (laughs) 